0: Hello and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast, with me, Christine Burns. Well, this episode is a bit of an oddity, as it emerged from dealing with a crisis. Now, if, like me, you organise conferences, then one of the occupational hazards is always the possibility that one or more of your speakers are going to be prevented from turning up. The setting in this case was the Gender Equality and Health conferences that we featured in the previous three episodes, and the missing presenter was a policy officer from the Department of Health who'd witnessed a very serious crime a few hours before she was due to join us in Preston. Fortunately, the Department of Health's approach to the gender equality duty is something that's already very familiar to me, as I sit on a stakeholder group that deals with this very topic. I also have the presentation slides. The only thing missing was time for rehearsal. So, you're invited to judge now how I rose to the challenge right well good morning Um, I think this is going to be a voyage of discovery for me because as uh, Shanaz explained uh, the uh, Shola who was going to present this um, was unable to come today Um, I don't work for the Equality uh, Equality and Human Rights Group in the Department of Health, so I'm going to be winging this slightly, but if I I introduce myself properly, uh, some of you will know I I chair uh, the Northwest Equality and Diversity Group. Uh, The Equality and Diversity Group was set up uh, in order to facilitate the production of this region's uh, original Equality and Diversity Strategy. That. Work on that began in 2004-2005, and the strategy was launched, uh, the public event, in January 2006, and now we're working our way through that three-year strategy. It brings together the support of the regional assembly, uh, the development agency, government office northwest, and as we've grown and connected up what we do, Shanaz in the SHA, and, uh, and also our colleagues in the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Um, so that provides, uh, and the reason for sort of going into the explanation on that is that it actually provides one conduit for for consulting uh, with, with with communities, and it, it gives me a little bit of background in terms of a, a wide range of uh, of, of diversities. I also run my own consultancy company, Plain Sense, which is organising this today and uh, does uh, equality and diversity consultancy. But the main reason I'm able to talk on this topic is because I'm also a part of two of the stakeholder engagement groups which the Department of Health has set up as part of its work. I sit on, along with uh, Peter, on the Gender Equality Advisory Group, uh, which brings together the civil servants in the department and representatives from different stakeholders within gender um, to to, to work at taking forward the kind of programs which then can come out to to the NHS and I've also sat for the last couple of years and in the last couple of days been uh, formally appointed to the uh, sexual orientation and gender identity advisory group for whom uh, I've um, chaired their specialist work stream on transgender issues for a couple of years and some of you will have seen the huge volume of material that we've, uh, we've produced out of that, out of that work in order to fill a, a, a massive void in terms of understanding from that perspective. So hopefully that gives me the right sort of uh, qualifications to pretend to be a, di- a Department of Health civil servant for this morning. Um, We start off from the perspective, as you know, in the last week or so, we celebrated the 60th anniversary of the NHS, so it's been around since before I was born and since since before most of us were born. But uh, it was founded on some very important principles. And I think it's worth noting that those principles are as important today as they were 60 years ago. Uh, They've been repeated. If you've seen the... um, I can't remember which document it is now. The, um, the NHS's constitution, yes, in the appendices, uh, what those principles are. I think the, the thing that has actually changed is that Britain has changed. Uh, the Britain uh, of the 19, of 1948 didn't actually have an enormous amount of diversity within it. I, I recall growing up in the 50s, and it was very unusual to see uh, a dark-skinned face you didn't actually see disabled people around because we sort of had a place to hide those. I mean, even if you were pregnant, you, know, you, didn't, you kept that under wraps as well in those days. The, the, work, the workforce, uh, although women had played an immense role, of course, in, in, in the war effort, in, in showing that we could do all sorts of things that men could do, and that led to one of the, the, the big social changes that's taken place within our, within our society – uh, with the return of men from, from the front, of course, we went back to being a predominantly, for a while, a predominantly uh, male-centred uh, workforce. But what's changed now, of course, is that we are beginning to realise the immense diversity of, of our population. It's often repeated that within um, 18 months, two years of now, um, the traditional uh, working stereotype of, a, of, a, of a, a young man who, with no disabilities, who is heterosexual, and of working age, is actually going to become the minority. Less than 20% of the population will fit that stereotype. Um, Trevor Phillips uh, from the Equality and Human Rights Commission has said that very shortly, we are moving towards a world in which the majority of the workforce is female. We're seeing now more uh, ability of disabled people with all sorts of disabilities to to work simply because we've we've, demolished the barriers that prevent them from doing so. And of course we've seen the emergence of a much uh, larger and in itself more diverse black minority ethnic population. And... Ethnic now has a new ring because not everybody who sort of, we didn 't think of as traditionally british is, is you know, conveniently colored for us to be able to recognize with the uh, the accession of the, the new countries into the ec we 've seen you know, great moves of Polish people people from uh, other parts of the, the, the eastern side of uh, of EC come, come to work here as well and we're realising that within our midst there are gypsies and, um, and um, traveller populations we're probably conscious about BME but we perhaps don't realise to the same extent that roughly the same number of people are lesbian, gay or bisexual in the north west where we have a population of about 6.8 million we reckon that about 650,000 people have a black minority ethnic background. But around that, that same number, getting on for 9 to 10% of the population are lesbian, gay, bisexual or trans. So we've got to start to understand that our population has changed, but the ethics of, of, the, of the health service remain the same. And if we're going to be true to those ethics, then we have to ensure that we actually adjust how we Run our services in order to, to accommodate that. So, what are the Department of Health saying that they're, they're actually trying to achieve? The principal goal, in line with government policy, is to ensure that everyone, no matter what their background, can access the health service. Because we all pay for it, we all pay the same amount for it, and we're all equally entitled to, to have the use of it. But it's not just for that reason. Either, because uh, there's an important connection between having a healthy um, community and also achieving our broader goals of social cohesion and a a nation that is at at peace with itself, comfortable with its own diversity. If people um, don't have the same health prospects then the chances are they won't have the same economic prospects. They won't be able to work to the same degree. Instead of them working and paying taxes and contributing to the economy by buying things, we have the reverse, that people are on on benefits and consuming Instead, So I always really think it's a triple whammy, that, that if we can actually get it right, that we've enabled by a variety of means people to be able to contribute to society, we actually take a very big step towards um, a, a achieving the, you know, the, the goals that we have for society as a whole. The other thing I think is that there's a lot more talk now within, within health circles as well about understanding that when the health, the health service was set up, Of course, its vision was about providing uh, cures and care for people who are already ill. And one of the big changes that we've seen in the last decade is the move now towards the understanding that the better goal is to actually prevent people from becoming ill in the first place. So again, the work that we do within the health service has to engage with that. And we have to ask hard questions about how do we prevent illness how do we prevent people from being unable to take part in, in society? And in order to answer that question, we actually have to peel back the layers and understand that people are not homogenous. We've all got different backgrounds. and We've all got multiple identities as well and, and things that impinge on us and ultimately on our health as well. And we can only address those. We can only put in place the right sort of strategic policies to prevent Uh, illness and promote well-being if we understand the needs of everybody in our population as individuals and as as groups so this isn't airy fairy stuff, it's not loony lefty stuff, it's not political correctness or anything else that people choose to label it, it's actually core to what the role of the health service is to society what is it here to provide for society but it's also evident that uh, it's not working for a lot of people. Now, I'm, many of you will know that I'm, I'm very specialist in the needs of transsexual and transgender people. And uh, some research that was carried out last year for the Equalities Review, because the, 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 the writers of the Equalities Review admitted they knew absolutely nothing about transsexual people at all. So how do you start to actually determine whether you're meeting their needs? or not when you do some research and you actually get the data to fill the gap and one of the horrifying statistics that emerged was that and this is a pretty big survey because there's only estimated to be about 5,000 transsexual people in the UK so managing to survey 872 of them is something of an achievement and among the many findings that came out of that was that 34% of those surveyed said that until they actually uh, received the support and help that they needed. 34% of them had considered suicide or self harm one or more times. And sometimes I think if we look at you know, the sort of blatant statistics, and one, one of our goals is to reduce uh, suicide, we have to understand what the factors are in people's lives that lead to suicide. So, uh, a very similar statistic emerges for um, gay and lesbian people as well. A similar survey undertaken by Stonewall showed about 33%. And it says here, gay and bisexual men are seven times as likely to uh, attempt suicide as as other men. Um, Women of Indian, and East, African origin have a 40% higher suicide rate than those born in England and Wales. Um, and the perinatal mortality rate among Pakistani-born women is nearly twice the UK national average. So if we are to make a dent on some of these big factors, we actually have to understand you know, where we need to go and what we need to engage with and make sure that services are listening to people and actually involving people in these communities and actually asking the question, not you know, sort of taking off our expert hats, as health service people sometimes, is being able to say, you're the experts in your needs. What do you need? And I think that's a big culture shift that needs to be brought all the way through. Yeah, speaking as speaking primarily as a campaigner myself that needs to be seen in, in, within the NHS as a whole. It's actually moving towards not a sort of them and us Thing, and there's a great out, out, unwashed population out there, but actually bringing people in and saying, no, the NHS is your NHS, let's work together on how we can make it work for your communities. So what have they actually been doing? Uh, well, one of the things that uh, Peter will be speaking about later this morning is that the department has uh, commissioned uh, a gender access to health study, Um, which is going to be carried out by the the Men's Health Forum and uh, Bristol University. They set up uh, 12 months ago, I've already mentioned it, the Gender Equality Advisory Group, and that involves uh, people from groups like Men's Health Forum, Women's Resource Centre, the Equality and Human Rights uh, Commission, myself uh, as an expert in in trans women and men's needs, um, to, to look at... You know, what needs to be done? What sort of material needs to be commissioned? How we actually get the right messages out to to the staff in your organisations and support you in order to be able to. Uh... Glad you're back. I was worried about it. I was trying not to get a complex. Um, one of the things they've, uh, that the Department has done is, in addition, you've you, you probably have already seen the, uh, the Gender Equality Guide that's been published, that should have come round to you in the last uh, 12 months or so. Before that, of course, there was the Disability Equality Duty Guide and a Race Equality Guide. Now what the Department is doing is publishing the next uh, round of material to support people taking this forward to a single equality perspective and being able to address all those other people. We mentioned there would be an age guide, a guide to religion or belief, a guide to sexual orientation. And because it's such a specific uh, area that people uh, perhaps need support in, in connection with the gender equality duty, uh, they also commissioned me to uh, write uh, a comprehensive guide uh, about the needs of transsexual people within, within health. And one of the things that you, that, that's coming out in about a month's time, and one of the things that emphasises is that we shouldn't think of transsexual people or transgender people purely in terms of the single uh, episode of gender reassignment in their lives, which is you know, maybe a couple of years. we need to ensure that people are healthy for their entire life and that they can actually feel uh, comfortable to to use services. And also that that the the NHS as one of the world's largest employers, in this country it employs 1.3 million people in a working population of about 45 million people, that's a pretty sizable chunk that, that The NHS can also be employing the best talents from wherever they come, and if that just happens to be somebody who's got a trans background, then you you want to be able to access those talents. Or more specifically, if you've spent 10 or 20 years training and developing somebody's skills within the NHS, you don't want to lose those skills for unavoidable reasons, because you can't accommodate the person. Recently, uh, David Byrne has been appointed as the uh, gender champion. Uh, David is the uh, Director General for Social Care within the Department of Health and uh, I met him at the last gender equality advisory group meeting Um, he's very keen and he definitely wants to to, to make a difference and actually I think that can be said of all of the the champions that have been appointed Uh, Sir Liam Donaldson for instance is the champion for sexual orientation these are all very senior appointments and these are people uh, at the top of the department who are very committed to their brief of ensuring that the, the, the health service is equally accessible for everyone. And when we talk about equal accessibility, we don't mean uh, providing exactly the same service for everyone, because that actually isn't the means by which you achieve equality. It's equality of outcome that is sought, and that may mean that you do things differently for different groups in order to achieve that goal of equality. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the, the meaning of the law in that respect, the law does not pro- prohibit you from uh, taking specific steps for a particular group in society in or- if, if it's in order to equalize their, their access to and their enjoyment of services. So again, that's a, another pointer to working with groups and saying, you no, know, in order so that you can feel that, for instance, as a disabled person, that you're, you're equally able to access and benefit from uh, the health service is a service user and you're able to look upon it as equally uh, in terms of being able to work within the health service. What do we need to do in order to do that? And as Shanaz mentioned earlier, one of the key things in order to achieve that is encouraging that we disaggregate data, that we actually collect data in the first place. Because without data, how do you make decisions? How do you decide where to, where to put priorities and if you haven't, and in a, a lot of cases, um, as was pointed out by the Men's Health Forum research, um, a lot of gen, initial gender schemes simply have top-level information about the numbers of men and women in the organisation. Well, as we all know, that tells us nothing, because we know that the women are all there, and the men are all up there. And that's not equality. So unless you can actually disaggregate the information in terms of who's working in these areas, who's using these services, and so forth, then the Equality and Human Rights Commission will look at your schemes and say, well, actually, that's not compliant, because there's no way in which you could have researched this, because you haven't got the data to start with. So why is there this move? Well, I think we've explained that already as well. But it isn't simply about legal compliance. And as Chanel said, and uh, as uh, Sarinda said when he was speaking on Monday, the law is not the target, it's actually the starting point. There's nothing to prevent anybody from aiming to exceed the law. And as the law stands at present, of course, if you you look into the depths of the, the race equality duty and the disability equality duty and the gender equality duty, you find that in the specific duties are all slightly different and the underlying uh, equality laws have different provisions as well I do this for a living and it makes my head spin and I've, I've concluded that the simplest approach is actually to aim higher than all that the safest way to ensure that you are doing a good job is to say what is the gold standard and let's aim for that because in health, I cannot see any reason framing below that as a, as a public service. Um, but also, there's the government push on this agenda. Most of you will have heard the announcement of the, you know, the legislative agenda for, for next year, and that includes the plan to, to table uh, the long-awaited Single Equality Bill, and that is going to fill in those gaps in any case, that, so that there will be a law that provides one equality duty for everyone and it will include all the strands we've talked about that exist already and all the new ones as well, sexual orientation, age, religion or belief um, and uh, effectively everyone in society. Because I often say this, but it's it's, it's almost a no-brainer that if you're actually doing equality, then if you have uh, an approach that leaves anyone out, then by definition you're not doing equality. Of course, many of you will actually know already that uh, the Department of Health has encouraged uh, trusts to to get ahead of the game and to regard the production of a single equality scheme as as best practice. And one of the initiatives that's been running for the last 18 months or so has been the uh, single equality scheme learning groups. The department's published its own single equality scheme. It will shortly be republishing Mark II because the thing about these schemes is that they're not set in stone. You know, they are working documents you can go back and change them and amend them and improve them further and I think the, other, the last point actually is that one of the values of doing taking a single equality approach is that it's far more efficient in any case that there are certain parts of doing this work which are common they all require data gathering um, so it's better to to set up one function to do that and to to build up that knowledge and actually um, develop from there. They all involve uh, consultation and involvement. And let's be clear about the difference between those. I I always favor involvement over consultation, but then the way I I define consultation tends to involve involvement in any case. A good consultation, speaking as a stakeholder, Um, is where you really feel that you have the opportunity to have influence on the outcome. And when do you actually have that opportunity? It's actually if there's a blank piece of paper on the table and you can talk about the overall structure. If somebody merely calls you in to present a policy or a program that they've already developed and said, here, would you like to have a look at that? Tell us what you think. Then we all know that the scope for um, real consulta- consultative effect is very small. Because if you do say, start to say, well, actually, no, that doesn't work for us. You know what actually happens is people say, oh, God, you know, we're going to have to unpick all this and start again. There's resistance. And you know it's not going to happen. So the consultations that actually take place at the end of the design exercise tend to be far less successful than those that actually involve people from the front. And what have we got to fear in involvement? It's actually maybe it's a bit unfamiliar at first particularly if you're dealing with groups of people who you feel uncomfortable around but that soon breaks down that's a question of familiarity and uh, in all the places I've worked in this type of functionality and particularly where I've I've worked on on the involvement of, of transsexual people which people almost inevitably start out with a lot of reserve about and then find, hey, these are people just like you and me and an awful lot then comes out of it as well. So, and as we do all this, the other magical thing, because I think when you start doing equality impact assessments, is that they seem like an, enorm- or an enormous annoyance. They're something people think of doing at the end of a process. Well, actually what we've got to learn to do is to see them as being something that you do so intuitively that they actually form part of the process of design. Because if you've taken on board through consultation and involvement the ideas of of beginning to learn what the needs of other communities are, then as you design a policy, as you design a service, that's in the back of your head already. That's what true embedding means then. It's when we actually start building things with everybody in mind rather than building with ourselves in mind and then finding out at the end that it doesn't fit half the rest of the population. That's when we get problems. So um, I probably sort of winged it a little bit more than the Department of Health would have done, but uh, hopefully I've covered their ground, um, and we're more or less on time for tea. Thank you very much. That was me, a week or so ago, trying my best to do a passable impression of a Department of Health policy official, with, I must say, a very patient audience. In the next episode, things are back under control as I head off to Westminster to interview a very independent-minded Labour backbencher, Lynn Jones MP. Till then, from me, Christine Burns, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production.